What do you see when you look at your city? What do you see when you look at your church? What do you see when you look at yourself? Do you see nothing but broken piles of junk and rubble? Because when God looks at you, he sees a future and a hope. The Bible tells the story of Nehemiah, a man whose heart broke when he saw the ruined walls of Jerusalem. But in that rubble, he also saw hope. He saw the tools to rebuild. It's time to see our city the way God sees it. It's time to see our churches the way God sees them. It's time to see ourselves the way God sees us. It's time to rebuild. Good morning, Central Church. If you are visiting, my name is Dan. I'm uh, the transitional pastor. It's my privilege to walk alongside this church body through a season of transition between senior pastors here. If you've been here a few weeks, I really am married, and my wife did arrive this weekend. Cindy, will you stand? I'm really glad to have my wife, Cindy, right over here. She's my better half, so things will get better now that she's here. Uh, We are in the middle of a study, about four weeks into a study through the book of Nehemiah. And as you're turning there in Nehemiah, uh, I I thought I'd give you a little bit of a context again, especially if you might have missed one of the first couple weeks, where this is in history, and we'll draw that then into the present time. So here is a very brief history of Israel, leaving a lot out, but touching on some of the high points. 3,463 years ago was the exodus from Egypt. Israel had been enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. God leads the nation of Israel out of Egypt. You can read all about that in Exodus. Forty years later, 3,424 years ago, God leads the nation of Israel into the promised land, into Palestine, what we know as roughly the modern uh, state of Israel, a little bit bigger than that at the time. For the next approximately 800 years, a a succession of kings, of, of Jewish kings, Israeli kings, reigned over the nation of Israel. Some of those those kings and those reigns were very great. Some of those kings and those reigns, especially when they turned away from worshiping the one true God, were very devastating to the kingdom of Israel. That all led up, especially those eras of bad kings leading the people astray from God to worship in the pagan gods of other nations around them to about 2,600 years ago, the Babylonian army, God allows this, Babylonian army surrounds Jerusalem, besieges the city, destroys the city, destroys the walls, destroys the temple, destroys all the buildings, carries off most of the Jewish people from Israel all the way over into what we think of as present-day Iran into Babylonia at the time. Now, in the intervening years, Babylonia is overtaken by the Persians. The Persians become the conquerors. They take control of all of that area. Now, the, the, the Jews are, are still in exile, but they're under Persian rule. God works in the hearts of these Persian kings, and he slowly begins to bring his people back into the land of Israel beginning 2,555 years ago when the first wave of exiles returned, led by a man named Zerubbabel. And they rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. 
Then 80 years later, God again works in the heart of King Artaxerxes, who is the subject of our text today. And he permits a second wave of exiles to return. And they begin, at least, they attempt unsuccessfully to rebuild the city walls. That group is led by a Jewish priest named Ezra. And then, 11 years later, we come to where we pick up in the book of Nehemiah, 2,464 years ago, Nehemiah returns to lead the rebuilding of the walls. We saw that last week in chapter 2, verse 8, where King Artaxerxes grants Nehemiah his request, changing his mind about a previous order that he had made, allows him to return and rebuild, even at the expense of the Persian Empire, the city of Jerusalem. Now, let me address the question. Maybe some of you are sitting there thinking, yeah, this is ancient history. What does ancient history have to do with me? How is this, this history that happened millennia ago, how is it relevant to our lives? Let me remind you something I said the very first week in, in, uh, that we were in Nehemiah. It's actually the words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, to, to a church like us. 1 Corinthians 10, 6, Paul says to believers about the Old Testament history like we're going through today, these things happen as examples to us. So it's not only real history that actually happened God orchestrates it in a a way that the principles that we see in this ancient history speak directly to situations that we face today in our lives. And the prime example that we've been mining out of this book of Nehemiah is this example of rebuilding. For, For Nehemiah, God put it on Nehemiah's heart to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. We see that in in verse 17 of our text today. Let us rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah had in mind what he says way back in chapter 1, verse 9, that Jerusalem is the place where God's glory is to be made manifest. Jerusalem is to be the place, the psalmist says, where all nations will be drawn to come and worship before him. And Nehemiah saw the state that Jerusalem was in, and and God built in him a desire to rebuild the city so it would become that place where God's glory would dwell as well. But what has God been putting perhaps in your heart as we've gone through this series? What is God putting in your heart to rebuild? Maybe it's been in your heart using the language of Nehemiah, let us rebuild our marriage. Maybe you have been in a conflicted marriage, and God is beginning to put on your heart some hope about rebuilding that, making it something that that it, it, it either used to be or never has been in the history of your marriage. Maybe God has put it in your heart to rebuild your fractured family. Maybe God has put it in your heart to rebuild, to pursue reconciliation with broken relationships at work or, or in your neighborhood or in friendships or, or here in this church. I, I certainly think as we're going through here that this speaks directly to the example of rebuilding a divided church. And in light of what's been going on in our nation in the last two weeks, what we've seen in the media, I think this speaks to rebuilding a segregated city a city that is still racially divided in many, many ways. This speaks to that. And ultimately, it speaks to rebuilding a relationship with God. It may very well be, in fact, I'm, I'm sure any group that, that, 
that gathers for church on Sunday morning, there are some who are, who are coming who, who they feel alienated from God, even if they've been attending church a long time, that there are people sitting out there in any given church on any given Sunday who say, I don't have any personal relationship with God. I, I feel a distance from Him. And so maybe what God wants to do is speak through Nehemiah to you today about what it means to rebuild a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Well, our text today, I'm going to read it, go through it quickly here, and then we'll we'll mine out the principles that speak to us, but it's it's verses 9 through 20. We're picking it up. We left off on verse 8 last week. I'm going to be reading out of the English Standard Version, starting with verse 9 of Nehemiah chapter 2. Here's God's word to us. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. So here's the situation before I go on any further. Persia controlled most of, most of the territory that, of, of the known world at that time, including everything from what is present-day Iran all the way down through the upper part of what is now present-day Egypt that certainly include all of what is present-day Israel. That was all known, that area of Israel, as the province beyond the river, but it was under Persian control. King Artaxerxes not only allows Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls, he makes Nehemiah the governor of that area, of the area that we think of as Judah, where, where the city of Jerusalem is. What we read going on in verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite heard this, it it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Nehemiah wasn't the only governor out in that province. There was the territory to the north of, of Judah, which was, we think of as Samaria, and that's where Sanballat was the governor. There was the territory to the east of Judah, and that's the territory that we know as Ammon, and that was ruled by the governor Tobiah, a man who's not even mentioned till verse 9 is Geshem the Arab. He was the governor of the territory that, that was known at that time as Arabia to the south, and of course to the west is the Mediterranean. So what's the picture here? Nehemiah is going back into a territory that is surrounded by hostile forces, that even though it's all under Persian rule, there are three nearby kingdoms that do not want to see the Jews rebuild the city. That's the situation that he's riding into. Picking it up in verse 11, so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days, and then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem with a plan If you've been here the last couple weeks, we see that that plan has been developed by four months of praying and fasting. But he initially keeps the plan to himself while he does his homework, while he surveys the city, while he inspects the situation, while he gets a sense of where the people's hearts are at. Picking it up, there was no animal with me but the one on which I rode And I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. 
If you've ever been to Israel or you've even looked at maps of Israel, it's impossible now to identify most of these locations because in the first century A.D., King Herod built what's called the Third Temple. And to do that, he cleared this large area of land, built this huge temple foundation, what we think of as the Temple Plaza. And on top of that, built his Third Temple. Well, that Temple Plaza, that huge, enormous foundation, covers the ruins, covers what was mentioned here in the text. So we don't know exactly. It's impossible to tell anymore where all these locations are. Verse 15, I went up in the night by the valley, that's probably the Kidron Valley, and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials, the Jewish leaders, did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Well, after these three days of surveying the situation, I'm sure of talking to a number of people, Nehemiah calls all the people there together. In verse 17, I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab heard it, they jeered at us and despised us, saying, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And we'll get into these three characters more in the next couple weeks, but these are the enemies that are, are amassing to oppose this work. And they're even now beginning to try and intimidate by insinuating that if you go forward with this work, we'll report it to the king of Persia as rebellion. And I replied to them, Nehemiah writes, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So again, Nehemiah's vision, as we saw him explain it to King Artaxerxes last week in verse 5, was to rebuild the walls of the city that had been destroyed by the Babylonian army about 140 years earlier to begin to restore Jerusalem as the place where God's glory would shine forth so that all peoples would be drawn to worship the one true God. And in verse 12, Nehemiah indicates even that idea was not his. That idea came from God. Verse 12, I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. It was God who inspired this vision to rebuild. And by the way, here's, I think, a a very relevant application for all of us. Here's a biblical example of being divinely prompted, of God planting an idea in our minds and growing a conviction about that idea in our hearts to to, to match that idea. That's that's the whole idea of, of, of divine prompting. And God does that today. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've come to know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, His Holy Spirit indwells your heart, and through the Holy Spirit, God can divinely prompt you. We see an example of this. This is one to write down and look up later, but in Acts chapter 13, as that chapter opens, there are some believers in a church in Antioch, and they're coming together, and they're praying and worshiping, and it's in that that time of prayer and worship that 
together they develop this, holy, this, this conviction that the Holy Spirit is prompting them to send out Paul and Barnabas on what we know is the first missionary journey. So God does that then. God still does that today. But here's an important qualification. I mean, you, you, you probably hear like I do. You probably hear people from time to time saying, well, God told me, or, or God put it on my heart. Here's an important qualification. God's divine promptings always fit within his revealed will, his revealed written will. In other words, what is in the Bible is always the boundaries by which we determine whether something that, that somebody claims as being from God is, is even worthy of considering to, considered to be valid or not. God will never, the Holy Spirit will never put in your heart to do something that is contrary to what he's revealed in his word. I've been in pastoral counseling situations with with a, with a man or a woman. I've had both of these where, where I've had one of them tell me, you know, uh, God is just le- leading me to leave my, my, my wife, my, my husband, that, that I have a peace about doing that. That is not from God because that is contrary to his word. So God does divinely prompt, but here's the test. Does what this prompting suggests, does that fit within the boundaries of Scripture. That is, that is the absolute acid test of whether something can even begin to be considered as a divine prompting or not. Well, as Nehemiah launches out to lead the rebuilding of Jerusalem, he encounters some obstacles to rebuilding. And here again is why Nehemiah is an example to us, because even though the circumstances Nehemiah faces in his obstacles are clearly different than the, the circumstances in your and my life, the principles of these obstacles, the truth of these obstacles, we encounter as we seek to rebuild relationships. First of all, the, 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 the first obstacle we see is the obstacle of opposition, and that, that we're introduced to in verse 10 with, with uh, coming on the scene of Sanballat and Tobiah, and in verse 19, Geshem, these, these men who have considerable power and influence who seek to oppose the work that God has put on Nehemiah's heart. And we're going to reserve all of that for the next couple weeks. We will look at that, but I I would say it right now. I'd say this much. If God has put it on your heart to rebuild maybe a marriage, a fractured family, a broken relationship, relationships within your church, relationships with people of other racial and ethnic groups in our community, even just with a relationship with him, there will come opposition. There will be people who rise up, sometimes people that you least expect, who oppose you pursuing that kind of reconciliation. There will often be spiritual opposition. Satan hates it when an estranged husband and wife start moving towards each other in reconciliation. He wants to prevent that. Satan hates it when fractured family members begin to come together and make peace. He wants to oppose that. Satan hates it when a divided church begins to pursue unity and healing. He wants to oppose that. Satan wants to cause division, wants to divide marriages and families and churches and cities. So spiritual opposition is a reality. It is an obstacle that we face in pursuing what God has put it on our heart to rebuild, but we will look at that more in the coming weeks. The second obstacle I think we see there 
is what I would call hopelessness. Let me just introduce it with this question. Why was it in verses 11 and 12 that Nehemiah keeps his plans to himself for the first three days that he's there? Do you see that? I went to Jerusalem. I was there three days, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Why did he keep that back, at least initially, from the people? I think here Pastor Stephen Cole has been very helpful to to me understanding. He he presents as a a possibility, and I, I would tend to agree this fits, that Nehemiah could see that the Jews living in Jerusalem, they were demoralized. I mean, they believed in God. They believed that God had moved in history, but they hadn't seen God move in their own eyes in recent history. They, they had lost hope. They had tried to rebuild the wall 11 years earlier, and they had been shut down and shot down in that effort. And now the last thing they were going to do is hear somebody coming in from the outside telling them to do something that they humanly believe, believe that, that that couldn't be done. They tried it before. They had lost hope that Jerusalem could be rebuilt. Maybe that's where you're at this morning as you think about what God has put on your heart or is putting on your heart to rebuild. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe you have made multiple efforts to, to, to pursue reconciliation with an estranged spouse or at least to decrease the distance that you feel in your marriage. Maybe you, you propose going to marriage counseling or, or, or to other resources that, that would actually help strengthen your marriage and all you are met with, at least from your perception, is a stone wall. It's easy to lose hope in those kinds of situations. Or maybe it's a, it's a conflicted relationship, maybe with a friend, maybe with somebody that, that is a brother or sister in Christ in this church, maybe it's some other situation at work or in your neighborhood, and, and, and you've been estranged from this person. There's a distance where once there used to be closeness, and you've tried to pursue reconciliation. Romans Romans 12, 17, as far as it depends on you, pursue peace. You think you have done that? And again, you're met with nothing in return, no willingness to reconcile. And it's easy in those situations to lose hope. Hopelessness leads people to end their marriages. Hopelessness leads people to cut off contact with family members, to abandon friendships, to change churches, to turn away from God. But the gospel is the answer to our hopelessness. And we'll get into that in a couple minutes. Our hopelessness, humanly, is an impossible situation, but that's where the gospel comes in. The gospel meets us in humanly impossible situations. Let me go on to the third obstacle. The third obstacle is one of those $99 words for a very simple concept, homeostasis. Homeo means same. Stasis means status, same status, status quo. You know that word. You know that concept. Status quo, homeostasis, is that idea that, you know what, we're all naturally resistant to change, that it's much easier just to keep on going, keeping things exactly the same, even if the situation that we're living in is, is, is a bad situation. The fear of change, even the change that would take us out of a bad situation, causes more anxiety than the anxiety we experience to stay in an uncomfortable situation. Homeostasis, status quo, being stuck in a situation 
because we, we fear change. We fear change. All of us have some anxiety about change. This is our default thing, that, that homeostasis, that describes us in most of our situations here. We see this, I believe, homeostasis implied in verse 14. I went to the fountain gate into the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. This is depicted in, uh, I realize that your visibility of this may be limited, but this, this is, verse is depicted in the painting by the French artist, the 19th century French artist, Gustave Doré. And he's painted this scene, among many other biblical scenes, of Nehemiah trying to survey the damage to the walls and to the gates. And I, I realize you can't see it real clearly, but, but it shows Nehemiah on his mount And he is trying to pass through the city, but he encounters this huge pile of rubble, and he can't get through the city. And that's exactly the situation here. Nehemiah wants to survey the damage to the walls and to the gates of the city. But as he goes about on his survey tour, he encounters piles of stone wreckage that are so large and so high that he can't ride through them, he can't ride around them, and he can't ride over them. He encounters a city that is littered with rubble. There are parts of the city that are totally cut off. Nobody's going there anymore because they are just filled with the rubble that have come from the walls when they were knocked down by the Babylonians. Now, that raises the question for me. I ask a lot of questions when I study Scripture. That raises the question, why hadn't the people cleared out this rubble? I mean, it was hundreds of years ago when the Babylonians had, had, had done this, 140 years ago. Why hadn't the people who had returned, why hadn't they cleared out the rubble? Why, why were whole sections of the city inaccessible to them? Could it be that maybe they didn't see the need? Status quo? Maybe it was that they feared that if they started clearing out the rubble that they'd stir up the opposition of their enemies surrounding them. Maybe, this is just a guess, but maybe they were paralyzed from doing so by guilt and shame. I mean, it was their sin and the sin of their, their forefathers that had caused God to allow the Babylonians to destroy the city, and that really had been, hadn't been dealt with. And so maybe deep down, even in, in, in ways that they wouldn't publicly acknowledge, they were paralyzed by guilt over that and by shame of that. And so they lived with the status quo. They lived with a city that was filled with rubble. Think this morning. Think about that concept of homeostasis as how it is as an obstacle to the rebuilding of of the conflicted relationships in your life that the Lord brings to mind. In those relationships, how are you living in the rubble? How is it that there are areas you won't even go anymore relationally because there's that rubble there that you've been unwilling or unable to address and clear out. What holds you back from clearing out the rubble? Is it, is it fear? Is it, is it guilt? Is it shame? Well, Nehemiah models for us how to begin to clear the way for rebuilding. And, and the first thing that I see that he models for us follows right on the heels of that subject of the rubble, and that is, I'll just say in my very plain language, we got to get real about the rubble. We got to get real about the rubble. Nehemiah brings the people together in verse 17, 
And what does he do? He begins by honestly describing their present reality to them. See the second, or see uh, verse 17, the first half. You see the trouble we are in? You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates are burned? What is he doing? He's saying, look at the obvious. He's challenging them to look at the rubble all around them. And my brothers and sisters, I want to challenge you as I challenge myself this morning to honestly face the rubble in your life and whatever realms of conflicted relationships that, that God is bringing to mind through this series as the Holy Spirit is working in your heart, what's the rubble that's holding you back? In your relationship with God, those of you who are here this morning and maybe you feel you have no relationship with God, you're estranged in a relationship with God, God feels like an angry enemy to you, what's the rubble on your end that holds you back? Is it the rubble of of autonomy? In other words, that you, like I, want to be in control of your life and, and, and the idea of giving up control to God or allowing the Lord Jesus control is... That, that's, that's a pile of rubble you can't get over? Is it self-righteousness, which is just the biblical concept for saying, I like to think of myself as a good person. I hate to think of myself as a person who sins. And so to admit my self-righteousness, to confess that, to come before God as a needy sinner, to come to the cross as one who needs to be forgiven, that's like this huge pile of rubble. Maybe that's your pile of rubble this morning? Or what's the rubble in, that's blocking the rebuilding of some of the conflicted relationships in your life, whatever they are? Is it, is it the rubble of pride? I mean, that's the rubble that goes all the way back to the garden. That's what first tripped up Adam and Eve is pride. Is, is pride in the different relationships that, that we experience conflict in, is it like a huge pile of rubble that blocks your way to rebuilding? Is it control? I, I want to control my marriage. I want to control my family. I, I want to control my friendships. I want to control my church. I want to control any sphere that I am in. That, that temptation, which also goes all the way back to the garden, by the way, that temptation is like a huge pile of rubble that is in the way of me being able to rebuild, of you being able to rebuild. What rubble inhibits the rebuilding of loving relationships in this church? Is it the rubble of our preferences? That, that our preferred worship style, our preferred programming, our preferred staff, our preferred, you name the preferences, you fill in the blank, that that becomes like blocks in a pile of rubble that blocks us from rebuilding conflicted relationships in our church? Is it pride? Pride getting in the way, blocking us from pursuing rebuilding? Nehemiah's words, you see the trouble we're in. We get real about the rubble by acknowledging, first of all, that it exists, that I, I am prideful, that I, I do want control, that I'm holding too tightly to my preferences. We get real with the rubble by acknowledging that it exists and that it holds us back from rebuilding our relationships with God and others. The gospel, the good news, that's what gospel means. The gospel is that there is a greater leader than Nehemiah 
that can deliver us from our broken relationship with God and our broken relationship with others, vertically and horizontally. The gospel is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to deliver us from the ruined city of our lives, to pull us out of the rubble. And Jesus calls us to begin that walk of salvation with him by getting real about the rubble in our lives. Luke chapter 5, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You get that? That his saving work in my life and in your life, it begins with calling us to acknowledge that we are spiritually, relationally sick, to be real about the rubble in our lives and to repent, to be willing to allow him to help us clear out the rubble in our lives. And can I say this this morning, if you're here this morning, and if you've never done that, if you have never come before the Lord Jesus Christ and say, yep, I got plenty of rubble all around me in my life, and I acknowledge that it is keeping me from peace with God, from from being saved, that, that I need to lay that down, today you can do that. In fact, not only today can you, you do that, today you should do that. Today you must do that. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. Today is the day to deal with that rubble. This morning is the time to deal with that rubble in your life. Maybe you've done that. Maybe you know you're a believer, and you know you have peace with God through Jesus Christ, but, but again, you feel that distance with God because the rubble has built up between you and God, because the rubble has been building up in some of your relational, your conflicted relationships. Again, today is the day you can renew that. Today is the day that you can confess the rubble that has been building up in your life, and you can, you should, you must lay it down before the Lord. Nehemiah goes on to challenge them to what I would say, or I'd call, reconnect the horizontal to the vertical. And if you look at the second half of verse 17, I'll show you what I mean. His challenge to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, what is it? That we may no longer suffer derision. Or or more accurately, that God's name may no longer suffer derision. That God's name would no longer be dishonored by the condition of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place that God had chosen to manifest his glory to draw people, unbelieving people, to come to the true worship of the true God. But the present condition of Jerusalem did nothing but cause God's name to suffer derision, to be dishonored. And Nehemiah saw the condition of Jerusalem as directly connected to how the world around them thought about God. It diminished God in their eyes. The same is true for you and me, brothers and sisters, if we claim to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Our horizontal relationships, our relationships with each other in our marriage, in our family, in our friendships, in our church, and across racial and ethnic lines in our city, those are directly connected to our vertical relationship with God. We see this in how Paul prays for the Thessalonians, believers just like you and me in 2 Thessalonians 1. He prays that the name of our Lord Jesus would be honored because of the way you lived. In other words, the way that we live, especially in relationship with each other, it either honors or dishonors the name of our Lord Jesus in the eyes of the watching world around us. 
how we live in relationship with each other directly impacts whether Jesus' name is lifted up and honored or whether it suffers derision. Jesus himself specifically applies this to our relationships in John 13. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What is he saying there? Whether we love one another is the primary evidence to the unbelieving world around us of whether our Christian faith is real, whether we are really a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the primary evidence to the people that we know who do not yet know Christ. God calls us through Nehemiah to reconnect our horizontal relationships with each other to the vertical relationship with him, to be grieved by the effect that our broken relationships have upon his name, to be compelled to pursue the rebuilding of our broken relationships. Why? Because God's reputation is at stake. Brothers and sisters, of all the reasons that you would want to rebuild your marriage or your family or your broken relationships or this church or this city, of all the reasons, the most compelling reason is that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be honored. That, that people will know that we are his disciples because of the way we love each other. And by the way, loving each other does not mean that we won't have differences and conflict. But loving each other certainly speaks directly to what we do with those differences and how we walk through that conflict. Finally, Nehemiah models how we ask for God's help and strength. Why? Because I can't do this on my own. I can't love people like that. I have to ask God for God's help to be moved out of my status quo, to, to, be, to be boosted out of my hopelessness, to be able to love each other and connect my horizontal relationships to my vertical relationship with him. We saw Nehemiah speak of the hand of God last week in verse 8. Here we see it again in verse 18. I told them of the hand of my God. That's we saw last week is, is a description of God's power. And notice how he connects the hand of my God to later in that verse, the people said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. What is Nehemiah doing? He's connecting the power of God, the power of God with our ability, our power to do what he calls us to do. In other words, that which I can't do by myself, love people who are hard for me to love, be moved out of my status quo situation, be lifted out of my hopelessness. I can't do that in my power, but he, by his hand, he, by his power, can strengthen my, pan, my hand to give me my power or give me his power. Paul models for us how to pray for God's strength and help and power in Ephesians 3. I pray that out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So if we have yielded our lives to Jesus Christ, he has filled us with his spirit, his Holy Spirit in our inner being. And it's his spirit that is able to strengthen us with power to clear the rubble in our lives, to deal with the rubble in our lives that we can't handle in our own strength. Well, I want to close this morning with an invitation. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up even while I'm making this invitation. 
I want to invite you this morning to acknowledge the rubble in your life. You know, as, as you are examining your heart, even as we go into this closing song and you think about where you are relationally with God, you think about where you are relationally with anyone whom, whom God is putting on your heart that you are in a conflicted relationship with, what's the rubble? Is, is it pride? Is it control? Is it preferences? What is the rubble that becomes an obstacle to you being able to rebuild? I want you, I invite you to acknowledge that rubble, to hear the invitation of Jesus Christ to come and lay it down on his, at his feet. Jesus says, Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. Today you can come and you can lay down the rubble of an estranged relationship with God, your rubble of self-righteousness, your rubble of pride or control or whatever it is. Today you can come and you can lay down the rubble that, that is in the way of your conflicted relationships of rebuilding them. Aren't you weary of it? Aren't you tired of carrying that burden? It's time to lay that burden down and surrender to Jesus. And I want to give you the opportunity to do that this morning. We're going to use this last song as an invitation time. I, I invite you, whatever the Lord is moving you to do, maybe it means you kneel right where you are in your seats and you, you put that rubble at his feet. Maybe it means, like happened some in first service, that you come up and you kneel and you do that here at the steps, up at the front, and then you go back to your seat. Whatever, whatever it may be, how is it that you can respond to his invitation, that you can lay down your burden, lay down this rubble, surrender it at the feet of Jesus? Listen to the Spirit prompting you. Listen to the Spirit prompting you and respond as we go into this last song.